did you know before that race that that was going to be your performance of a lifetime? I felt like that it was my time to do something special, for sure. Game time with Boomer Esiason. This week's guests are 2016 Olympic silver medalist in the 100-meter hurdles, Nia Ali, and the 2016 gold medalist in the shot put, Ryan Krauser. Presented by GEICO. Today, we're proud to visit virtually with a pair of American Olympic gold medal contenders who are looking forward to competing in Tokyo this summer until the global pandemic postponed the Olympics to 2021. So how does this delay affect them and all Olympic hopefuls? Later on in the show, we'll ask defending gold medal shot putter Ryan Krauser. But first, we'll put that question to an amazing hurdler who captured a silver medal in Rio four years ago. It's my pleasure to welcome the reigning world champion in the women's 100-meter hurdles, Nia Ali. Nia, welcome to Game Time. This is a great opportunity, so I'm happy to be here. How are you uh, dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic? I know it's got to be disappointing that the Olympics were postponed to 2021, but how are you dealing with it personally? Oh, yeah, it's obviously very disappointing. Um, however, I am happy to be able to have this time to continue to work on myself and just developing different areas of my race, um, just going back to the drawing board and being able to focus on things that I may not have had time to. You started running at the age of six. You're a Philly girl. What actually attracted you to the hurdles? I began hurdling just because I've always been kind of multifaceted um, when it comes to sports, period. I played basketball. I liked to flip growing up. And I felt like I wanted to do something where I could show my athleticism a bit more in high school. So um, one of the coaches just asked me how would I like doing it, like running full speed at barriers. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting. Uh, <laughs> let me see if I can do it. And kind of just, uh, it's been history ever since. Going from Tennessee to USC and in the middle of all of that, unfortunately, your dad was a part of a murder-suicide. How were you able to cope with that part of your life and then still be successful? Just a lot of um, internal growth and being able to lean on my support system and my family. My family has a very strong faith and uh, we go to each other for everything and being able to just talk about things. I think majoring in psychology helped a whole lot because I was able to kind of deal with my own emotions and learn how to talk through them and, and know that it's okay not being okay. So that kind of helped me move forward. And then you won the 100 meter hurdles in the NCAA. And I'm just trying to think what that must have taken for you both mentally and physically to overcome all the hardship in your life and all the disappointment and then to become a winner. What was that like? It was great. I've always been a type of person to be able to bounce back and make adjustments. I kind of just was like, you know, you can't be down on yourself for so long. What would your father want to see from you? And I just focused on those things and just continue to push myself mentally, just challenge myself on and off the track. The same work ethic that I have on the track, I want to have it off in, in every aspect of my life. And once I began to focus on that, I was able to be more mature and uh, get through it. You know, I love your son's name, Titus Maximus Tinsley. What a name. And I know <laughs> that there were probably many in your life at that time thinking that if you were going to have a baby, this was going to be career suicide for you. Yeah. That in other words, you were not going to be able to fulfill your dreams by winning a world championship and eventually going to the Olympics. Uh, what kind of hurdles in life did that present for you? 
That was tough for me mentally, honestly, because this, it was something that was new for me and that I've never experienced. Um, I've always had the support from my family and there's always been a lot of people um, who believed in me in terms of my, my physical capabilities on a track. It just seemed like during that time, I didn't have that full support. I didn't know what to expect. And it seemed so new to everyone that it was kind of like, that's all I heard was, what are you gonna do? What about track? And I was like, wow, like, I'd say I'm pregnant and you say, what about track? That was very hard for me to deal with. Um, so I, I just had to kind of take a step back and try to figure out how I could just really enjoy and bask in something that I felt was so beautiful, regardless of how it may have seemed to the track world. And then get back knowing that in the back of my mind, I'm going to get back out there and I'm going to be better than I left because I'm not finished with the sport yet. I loved your quote. I want to be his hero. That yeah. was your quote, and you did not say it in this interview, so I'm bringing it up. What does that mean to you when you say, I want to be his hero? It just means that I want to be a great example. Everything that I want for him, I, you know, it's just things that I feel like I see as a person um, and myself and just more. I want him to be so much better than me. So in order for that to happen, I feel like I have to set a great example. I don't want him to look at me and think, that he set me back or that having him made me just stop my career or that I was ever regretful of anything. So um, me saying that is just me saying, hey, I wanna show him what strength looks like, determination, resilience, and all of the above. I wanna set the bar for that. Oh, what a great message. A few days after qualifying for the 2016 U.S. Olympic team with a third place finish in the 100 meter hurdles, Nia Ali opened up her gym bag looked at her red, white, and blue uniform, and she says, got the chills. So what was that like knowing that you finally made the Olympic team? Oh my goodness. I, to this day, it's like so hard to put into words because you know you train for it, but you still have to go out there and do it. So um, I just remember like walking in to seeing my name um, all on like the Nike signs and having my bag and my USA gear and just trying on like my ceremony outfits. And I was like, wow, I'm doing this. Like it's every single moment, every step I took, I was like, I can't believe it. I can't, I was trying to like record everything, just so much excitement and exhilaration. So, I mean, that's all I can remember. And I'm like, I want to feel that again. I, I'm just, I'm eager. You know, it's amazing. You weren't considered a medal favorite in Rio. Your reputation was that you were more of an indoor track star than an outdoor track star. Tell us all, what's the difference? Why is it such a big difference? I don't know. Um, I, I'm just guessing it's because I had won two indoor medals already at that time and no outdoor that that's why I was considered to be a, a specialist and I had made an outdoor team. I'm guessing that's why, but I'm just happy I was able to uh, still like prove myself to be able to come out there and come away with a silver just for my team alone and get that sweep, you know? You know, it was amazing. You say get that sweep like it's casual. That was not just a sweep. That was a historic sweep for the USA. And that had to be something standing on that podium with your two teammates sharing the national anthem and that historic sweep. It was. We didn't even know. Honestly, that was like the, the best part about it. We didn't go out there trying to accomplish history. It was just we all went out there to try to win. And we and we spoke about it. And it was like, hey, we all need to shoot for gold. And if we miss, hopefully we'll get first, second, third uh, gold, silver, bronze. So and that's what happened. We found out about history 
it was like, wow, like we did it. We're really great friends. We really root for each other. So it was a great feeling to be up there with those ladies. It's an individual sport, but yet you're all wearing the same uniform. And when you get to share the podium together, you really get that team concept feeling. So I'm glad as a former team athlete myself that you got an opportunity to feel that way. You know, interestingly enough, after that, in 2018, you became a mom again. You had a daughter. And I'm sure many in your family thought, okay, this is it with track and field. We're not doing this anymore. But no, you said, I got to continue on. And you go to the world championships in, in Doha. And in 2019, I went back and watched this. And I was listening to the announcers. And they really weren't even focusing on you in this race. They were focusing on everybody else around you. And all of a sudden, you come exploding out of the blocks and you go wire to wire to win this world championship. Did you know before that race that that was going to be your performance of a lifetime? Uh, I felt like that it was my time to do something special for sure. When I first got to Doha, I just felt different. I don't know, I don't know what it was, but something about my whole experience just felt like I, I was in a moment, I was in a groove, and I needed to just embrace it and go with the flow. And my rounds kind of backed it up. So um, after the, the, the first round in the semis, I kind of started to feel like it's going to be a special final for me. Now, the question is, how do you stay in peak shape during the next, say, year before we get to Tokyo in 2021? Luckily for me, this um, kind of taking off a little bit of time isn't foreign to me because um, I've done it twice with the children. So I kind of know how to scale back and mm. when to pick up on certain areas of training, but just staying fit, I think it's about being like mentally happy, being in a good space, being able to keep that passion, that fire without just overworking yourself or burning out, but just knowing that you do have a goal in mind and you don't have to get there in one day. And I think that that's what I'm doing and what I'm, um, what I'm able to do during this time. It's not unusual for a young boy to throw a ball around in his grandparents' backyard, but Ryan Krauser's grandpa, Larry, actually had a shot put ring out back. And that's where the defending Olympic gold medalist first fell in love with the sport he now dominates. Ryan, welcome to game time. I have one question for you before we get into the whole shot putting aspect of this. You're six foot seven, you uh, went to the University of Texas. And when I think of six foot seven, I think the University of Texas, I think left tackle. Why not left tackle? Why shot putting? Yeah, so when I was younger and playing football, I was actually a quarterback. I was tall and skinny. Uh, my freshman year, I think I was like 6'1", 170 pounds. And that's like dripping wet. So definitely didn't have a football build through high school. And it's just been a slow gain for me trying to gain weight, gain muscle, and, and kind of get the body type really of an Olympic shot putter. Your grandpa had a shot put in the backyard and you were able to use this. And I know you come from a family of throwers, you know, the javelin, the discus, the shot and everything else. So this was a passion from when you were a young man at the age of what? When did you start throwing the shot put? I really started in fifth grade. It was just kind of something to do with my friends. And when I started track and field, it was it was everything. I was doing the hundred. I was on our four by one relay. Uh, I was a long jumper, and then I triple jumped when I was able to and uh, picked up the shot and discus around the same time. And they came pretty naturally to me, but I was a tall, skinny, lanky kid. Really growing up, I played a lot of basketball, so I definitely had more of a basketball player's type of build. Kind of grew into my frame as I progressed, and there wasn't any really point that I gained a ton of weight. I was always have been the taller, skinnier thrower, even now 
at uh, six seven, three ten. I'm still on the skinny side with most of the guys being five ten to six foot, three ten to three thirty. Something that I really truly don't understand. Is there a way that you could explain it to all of our viewers exactly how important your footwork is to your success? The best way to describe the shot is you have a seven foot circle, uh, can't step outside of it. And so seven feet, when you're trying to create as much linear velocity is not very big. Uh, so you're trying to get a 16 pound ball to go as far as you can in a seven foot circle. So for me, if I lay down, I'm almost the length of the circle. And so it's pretty constricting in the sense that I can't, I have to really maintain my balance and my posture and technically execute well. Otherwise, I'm going to struggle to stay in a seven foot ring. That for me is, is kind of the challenge where it, the optimal shot putter is probably like 6'3 to 6'4, uh, big enough that you have a big frame and can generate a lot of power, but not too tall that the circle starts to restrict your movement a little bit. I just want to take you back one, one a few years, and this is when you upset Joe Kovacs in the Olympic trials. What was that moment like when you knew that you actually just conquered the best in the world? That for me was a really special moment, uh, not just because I made my first Olympic team and had the upset victory at the Olympic trials, but because it was really like an accumulation of the past five years of hard work in college. Uh, so in college, I graduated with my undergrad and master's in five years, uh, getting my master's in finance. And so I was constantly under heavy workload not just training, but in, in the classroom. So I felt like I had so much potential that I could never really get to, to show in the circle in my distances. So it was like a big, just sigh of relief of like, this finally paid off the, the years and years of feeling like I was kind of just grinding away with, with minimal to show for it. Not that I had an unsuccessful college career, but I felt like I knew what I could do. I just wanted to show kind of showcase the work I've been putting in, but finally kind of came to fruition there. You know what that is, Ryan? That's called dedication, my man, and you showed it. Talk about peaking at just the right time. Ryan Krauser uncorked the three best throws of his life to claim the gold medal at the 2016 Rio Olympics. As he said at the time, to get here and have everything essentially perfect, words can't describe how I feel right now. And you've come from a family of throwers. You're the first Krauser ever to win an Olympic medal. What was it like up on that podium during the national anthem? Yeah, it was a surreal moment for me just being up there along with fellow American team and teammate Joe Kovacs to go one, two there in the shot. And any any track and field athlete, I, I can guarantee you dreams of being on an Olympic podium, preferably at the top yeah. and uh, hearing the national anthem play. So that was such a special, special feeling because it wasn't the first time that I'd like lived that in my head. I'd thousands and thousands of times at the end of practice if I had a good throw imagine that being the throw to win the Olympics and then imagining being on the podium does having a guy like Joe Kovacs as a rival does that help push you oh without a doubt the shot put as an event is unbelievably deep right now uh without a doubt it's the best throwing group uh if you just look at distances that the that the world has ever had and the U.S. Is, is always a dominant force in the shot. We are definitely a powerhouse in the event. It's an honor to be a member of the group, and those guys definitely motivate me because if I know I'm not at my best on any given day, that they're training uh, and working hard, working hard to be at the top. So it's constantly all of the top athletes are motivating each other. 
to be better knowing that every single day those guys are, are gunning to beat you. So when you're not throwing, what kind of workouts are you doing? What kind of cross training are you doing? Throwers uh, are a pretty interesting group in terms of the way that we train. It is a combination, I'd say, of almost a little bit of a sprinter because you have to be fast and dynamic. Uh, a lot of our lifting would be similar to a power lifter, kind of almost like an offensive lineman. So the rule of thumb is if you want to be competitive, not even the best, just competitive at an elite level, you have to go uh, three, four, five, six. So you have to be able to snatch 300 pounds, clean 400, bench five and squat 600. And that's kind of just like, that's the minimum. Um, so if you can check those boxes, you can be, be a good thrower. Um, and so everybody out there is pretty strong, but we're actually surprisingly quick. Uh, for guys that are all over 300 pounds. Uh, I think I ran, not that it was blazing fast, but a 4.8 uh, at 315. You know, Ryan, I see you on Dancing with the Stars in the future. Ryan Krauser says he likes having fans in the stands. He believes it adds to the intensity. The bigger the stage, he claims, the better people perform. And I would agree with that. And you talk about a big stage, Ryan. How about Doha 2019 Worlds? You said this about your competition greatest and closest shot put competition ever. How close was it and why do you feel that way? Doha was really just almost an unbelievable competition. Uh, the best way I can put it is when we finished, my dad, who's my coach, told me if I had watched a movie and that was the scripted ending, I would say it was unrealistic with the way that it turned out just with the, the performance, the performances that happened there. So to put it in perspective, Joe Kovacs, one with 2291 over 75 feet i was second with 2290 and tied with tom walsh at 2290 and i won on the tiebreaker and so one centimeter half an inch uh between first second and third at the world championship and i believe joe threw the fifth farthest all time uh tied for that and then uh tom and i threw the sixth farthest all time in the very first round i broke the uh, world championship record at in the high 2230s. So by three inches, I broke the the 20 the world championship record, and that ended up being they threw all we all threw almost two feet farther than that wow. uh, by the end. So at for the very first round, I threw a championship record. I'm thinking that's that's going to hold up for gold. That that's the farthest anyone's ever thrown in a world championship. Uh, and then later that round, Tom Walsh goes over 75 feet, uh, and it was kind of just. Everyone was a little shocked by that. And uh, moving through the rounds, going into the final round, it was uh, out of nowhere. Joe throws one over three feet farther than he's been than he had thrown the entire comp. Throws over seventy-five feet, and it just you could tell it was far. Comes up on the measurement one centimeter farther than Tom Walsh, uh, <laughs> and it, it, I was just smiling at that point because it was like this is just ridiculous. And uh, very last throw for me. I was second to last thrower through 2290, tie Tom Walsh. And so the way the tiebreaker works, whoever has the second best throw. And so I had the, the second best throw at almost 75 feet, 74 mid. And so it was uh, just a ridiculous, ridiculous competition with how close it was. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. And also to Nia Ali, who joined us earlier in the program, and to all of you out there for watching. I'm Boomer Esiason, and I'll see you again right here on Game Time with legendary Olympic track and field superstar, Carl Lewis. Nia, why Titus Maximus? Titus Maximus. I just felt like it was such a strong name. When you name your child, they want to live up to it. So um, Titus was strong, Maximus backed it up, and I was like, you know what, I think this would be a good name for him. I like it, I like it.